Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Welcome back to another episode of Science in Podcast, presented by Science and Pictures Magazine. As always, we have two co-hosts here. I'm one of them, Madison Dix. There's the other one. Jared Adelman. That's him. Um, however, this week will only be with you for a very short time because this is a mini-sode. Yay! It's a small one. So tiny. Just a little guy. Um, we're still going to be taking the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature, as always. Still going to have some fun facts, probably a rabbit hole or two. Um, but we're going to try to stay focused on our topic this week, which is... Jared? Which is the very first sustainable cell culture in the lab of corals. Um, this is incredible, and it comes from an article titled, Establishing Sustainable Cell Lines of a Coral. That's redundant. Acropora tenuous. Awesome. That's redundant was my comment. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> Super excited about it. So some quick definitions for anyone who's new to marine biology. Um, corals are really important. They're actually a symbiosis between an animal and a plant. Um, corals are colonial organisms, which means that one coral, which are those sort of plant slash rock looking things that you see in tropical places, one coral is actually thousands of tiny animals working together with plants and lots of microbes um, to build a community that we call a coral reef. Corals are the foundation of tropical life. They support 25% of all known ocean species, even though they cover less than 1% of the ocean floor. And uh, generally, they're pretty awesome. They're also very endangered right now which makes the fact that they were able to grow them in a lab really, really exciting. Let's talk more about that. Indeed. Um, so first, going to rattle off our, our authors, who are scientists uh, Kaz Kawamura, Koki Nishitsuji, Eiichi Shoguchi, Shigeki Fujiwara, and Noriyuki Sato. Uh, this was published in uh, the journal Marine Biotechnology. Um, and it focuses on something that is really, really, really tough to do, which we actually talked about uh, in your episode with Dr. Bronda Montgomery, which is culturing microbes. Except not really microbes this time, but the singular cells of multicellular animals, which is not a new concept, believe it or not. We've done it a lot, but mostly with uh, mammals, um, which is, you know, um, what we do because mammals are us as humans. So it's useful to study things that are closely related to us, but it's also useful sometimes to not, to see how far those genes and those traits actually carry. Yeah. Corals are a living animal, just like us, but they are very distant from us on the tree of life. They are an invertebrate, no backbone going on. Um, and they're one of the earliest multicellular animals. Corals evolved about 600 million years ago. Um, so... They are very different from us, but we are deeply connected with them in our everyday life, even if you don't live near the ocean, um, because of how much they do for ocean health and how much ocean health translates to terrestrial health. Exactly. Um, if only ocean health was as easy to study as terrestrial health. Exactly. But, right. Um, so I think I remember talking about this uh, in your Dr. Montgomery episode, but to create the right culture for the right kind of microbe, or in this case, a single cell, you need the right medium, which is a sort of like nutrient soup. Um, unfortunately for marine single cell cultures, seawater just doesn't cut it. It doesn't work. Hasn't worked, continues to not be definite uh, in itself. That's super ironic. Like you'd think that since we're taking something out of the ocean, seawater would be the perfect medium, but no. It no, it it wouldn't, but it kind of makes sense though. Like you don't see multicellular 
versions of single-celled animals are the reverse of that in the water. They're usually housed in like a massive tissue. So I feel like for like the lab single-cell cultures, it makes sense that you sort of have to use stuff that acts as the tissue for them, right? Okay, you're right. Like the single cells aren't just floating in the ocean. They're encased in an organism, in this case, a coral. So we have to create the, the conditions inside the coral's body, if you will, not just the body of water that the coral lives in. Exactly. So or just something that, um, <laughs> so they couldn't use something that was like straight for a mammal either, uh, but they used parts of a uh, mammal type culture, which included a uh, fetal bovine serum, which doesn't actually have a strict definition because it's just blood from a fetal cow. Um, but the primary goal that is, is to find all- as hell. I love it. Yes. <laughs> It is very witchy. Um, not as witchy is the proteins uh, called growth factors inside of it, which basically uh, not, what's the opposite of inhibit? Not prohibit. Allow. Induce. The, yes, allow. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, the growth of cells. But they mix that with uh, seawater. They messed with the osmotic pressure and the pH, and it finally worked. Um, these guys were a little bit set up for su- success because... I know I just talked about how hard it is to culture marine microbes, but they have actually done it so far. Um, They've used uh, the same methods in a species of uh, Japanese tunicat, which is how to describe a tunicat besides like a bag stuck to the ground. A tunicat. They're also our our closest living relatives without a backbone, but that's not as descriptive. A tunicat is like a coral with with the beginning of the backbone. It also looks like a tiny, brightly colored, uncircumcised penis growing out of the seafloor. Yes, they also wear something called a tunic, which is a bag of mucus that catches marine debris, and then they swallow it, and then they filter it, and then they put the mucus back on, and that's how they survive. Grossed out? Me too. Good thing we're not talking about them today. (laughs) (laughs) We are not. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, those methods uh, were what was applied to create the first sustainable uh, self-multiplying culture of coral. And sustainable is important. Um, This... Actually, yeah, it does fit a lot of um, definitions of sustainable, but the goal here is to make a culture that's useful for a really long time. Um, It's much easier to make a cell proliferate than make a cell live live forever, so you want to make the right medium that allows, uh, you know, just as long as a study period as possible. Yeah, so they've created what they call a cell line, um, which basically means that these cells that they have cultured are able to replicate and propagate over and over and over again, um, hopefully indefinitely, right? Yes, indeed. Um, In this case, it happened for over six months. Um, I was hopeful that they said over because it kind of implied that some lines were sort of reaching further than others, which is progress. It's a lot of progress. We still got to tweak with the medium, um, uh, as we'll find out in in a a lot of ways, but this was huge. Very huge, very huge. Um, Another thing that I found really interesting about the study is, you know, the first time I read it through, I was sort of thinking they were taking, you know, tiny, like, coral animals and trying to grow full corals in the lab, but they're not. They're taking, like, basically what you could think of as coral fetal cells. They're called, let me real quick find it, they're called um, endoderm cells. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, take a larvae coral. It's called a planula. It looks like a little, it's like a stereotypical like germ with like hairs around it. Um, And then put it in enzymes that split the cells apart. Yeah. (laughs) That's what you have here. If you remember in like life science, if you learned about, you know, after the sperm and the egg combine in a human womb, um, how 
then the combination of those, that big cell starts to divide and then form different tissues. That's what these cells are. They're the first cells to divide. And that means they have the potential to create pretty much every tissue in a coral's body. Yeah, it's really fun too, because the species they used, Acropora tenuis, is a simultaneous hermaphrodite. It has both male and female re re reproductive parts. So it is like humans, but also very, very not. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, just at the beginning, at that very early beginning of life stage. Um, corals do have sperm and eggs, by the way. So yes, this one is a simultaneous hermaphrodite, which means each one produces both. Um, but when they spawn, when they reproduce, they do release sperm and eggs into the water, which then combine and form these little planulas, which then start to divide. So what we have here in the lab are those basically cells from the planula, just the beginnings of those divisions replicating themselves. And that has really, really amazing opportunities to study a lot of things about corals, a lot of things that we don't know about them right now that we need to learn about them in order to save them from climate change. Um, specifically, how corals interact with their symbiont. Basically, I mentioned earlier, corals are actually a partnership between a plant and an animal. So very early Most on, corals. when a coral is uh, is developing, you know, separating all of those little cells, um, those algaes, the zooxanthellae, the symbiont, they get in there within like a few days, right? Um, I'm not going to answer that because no one really knows for sure. This relationship is very, very, very poorly un understood, which was part of the reason for this whole study in the first place. No one really knows what goes on in those first few oh, days. Yes. It does happen really, really soon. But I found, I found what I was interpreting that way. So it says like, so the cells that they were finding... Um, are cells that they know from the genetics are going to turn into basically what you consider like the coral skin cells where these symbionts are housed. So if these tissues are developing really early, then maybe that symbiosis starts really early too. It's one of the exciting things they're wanting to find out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so why do you think that they used this specific species, the Acropora tenuis, which is a part of, they're called Elkhorn and Staghorn corals. This one actually looks like neither, which I'm guessing is why it doesn't have a common name. Yeah, this one looks like if you took a bunch of Elkhorn corals and like made them mini and put them all together. Like if Elkhorn does, coral yeah. is a tree, this is the broccoli version. <laughs> yeah. The broccoli um, coral doesn't have as much of a ring to it. So I, I didn't look at the article to see their reasoning for why they chose Acropora, but can I guess? Yes. So Acropora is one of the fastest growing types of corals. Don't get too excited, it still doesn't grow that fast. Um, <laughs> it's also one of the most important reef building corals that creates habitats for so many other ocean animals. And it's one of the most endangered. There are 20 species of coral listed as endangered by the IUCN and Acrophora are half of them. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so actually, yes, all, all of those reasons. Uh, Acropora is the dominant reef builder across much of the Indo-Pacific, which is where it's native to. Um, Madison and I usually talk about Caribbean corals, but this is on the other side of the world. Um, it's also already had its full genome sequenced, uh, making it a quite ideal subject, especially as far as like identifying the cells once they've cultured them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's really important that we are protecting corals in the Indo-Pacific um, because there are a lot more different types of corals in the Indo-Pacific, um, and those reefs are particularly threatened right now. We've actually lost 
um, about, well, unfortunately in the last, um, since 2014, we've lost 69% of all corals in the Indian Ocean um, oh and 99% in the Seychelles. Well, that's not good. No, it's not good. Um, so side note a little bit, um, you might be wondering why corals are dying. <laughs> so can we like sidebar and talk a little bit about like why corals are endangered and why this is so important? Yes. Amazing. All right. So corals are very, very sensitive animals. They've been on this planet for a very long time, but they evolved in the tropics. So around the equator where the weather is really stable year round, at least historically. Um, climate change is the fastest, most rapid change in weather patterns our planet has experienced, um, ever. And corals are not adapting to that very well. So because of climate change, the oceans are warming and that heat change and the weather changes it's causing are causing a lot of destruction to corals, but we don't understand like on the microscopic level, exactly how it's happening. We do see a correlation with heat stress and coral death. Um, and we see that through a process called coral bleaching. So basically when the water gets too warm and stays too warm for an extended period of time, the corals spit out all the little plants that help them make their food. So that's the symbiont I was talking about, the zooxanthellae. And that's not just like a little like helper buddy for the coral, like that is a very important partnership the symbiont, the algae, gives the coral about 90% of its food. By... Exactly. Some, somewhere between 50 and 90, depending on the algae. Exactly. Um, so it's really the source of all nutrients, almost all nutrients in the tropics, um, because in those places where corals live, um, there's not a lot of nutrients in the water. That warm water doesn't hold as much gas, and because of that, it just can't support as much life. So without these little algaes in their tissues to photosynthesize and supplement their diet that way, these corals have no way of getting enough to eat. They can reach out with their tentacles for plankton, but they're not going to find enough to sustain them long term. And so because of that, when these waters warm, the corals bleach, suddenly they don't have enough food and they start to die in mass numbers. And this has happened multiple times in the last 30 years. So like in 2016, for example, um, there was a heat wave in the Great Barrier Reef that killed 30% of all of the shallow water uh, corals there um, and bleached 85%. Um, and during that same uh, period is when most of the Indian Ocean bleached as well, which I was just talking about with the Seychelles losing 99% of their corals. And then there was another bleaching event in 2017 um, that actually brought heat stress to three quarters of all reefs in the world and killed off 30% of them. So thus far in 2021, we have, we estimate about 50% of world corals left. So it's a really important okay. threshold. We need to start bringing them back. Seriously. One yeah. really hopeful avenue now that we've said all that is uh, the reefs of Eilat in, in Israel. They are astonishingly good at dealing with heat stress. And so they have had so few bleaching events that are so well protected that they're actually doing quite well right now. Yeah. So, yes, corals need help, but we should really be also looking to places that are doing really well and kind of seeing what they're yeah. doing better. What is boosting their resilience? What's helping them? Like there is so much we don't know about this phenomenon. 
we know it's terrible. We know it's killing our coral reefs and that's disrupting the about 500 million people that depend on coral reefs for their livelihood as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So we know it's bad, but we don't understand the cause. And until we understand the cause, we don't know how we're going to help corals right now. Obviously, anything that we do to address climate change helps corals in the long run. But these animals are at a point where long-term climate action isn't going to get them to the place we need them to be in order for them to survive. So in addition to climate action, we also need more targeted action um, based on science. We need a better understanding of their biology, of exactly how they're being affected and exactly what we need to do to help them right now. Yes. And for the people uh, that like to quote statistics about coral having mass extinctions in the past, yes, it's happened. It's happened about like six times in the last 30,000 years. It also takes thousands of years for them to come back. So like, we're not going to be there for that, guys. Yeah. So we said that this species or this genus of corals, the Acropora, are the fastest growing. um, But that means they grow about 100 millimeters per year in really good conditions. (laughs) So still not not very fast. It's still going to take thousands of years. Like for the amount of coral we've lost on the Great Barrier Reef to come back, it's going to take at least 5,000 years. Oh, boy. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, mm mm-hmm. it's a big one. Yeah. And speaking of Acropora, they're also one of the corals that is the least resilient to heat. So they're the ones that are bleaching the most often. Yeah. So there are some yeah. corals that are super resilient. There's really cool scientists studying them too to figure out what that's about. But we also need to study the ones that aren't resilient and try to help them. Yes, indeed. Like our friend, uh, shoot, what's it called? Acropora tenuous. Acropora tenuous, our little broccoli mm-hmm. friend. Our little broccoli friend. So our little broccoli friend uh, was uh, kind of spoiled by our title, but it worked. The whole process worked. They put them in this little soup. They put little enzymes in the soup that broke up the cells. And what happened next was really surprising. Um, so the coral larvae split into um, eight different types of lines uh, with three different color palettes, I guess. They were brown cells. They called them brilliant brown in the study, which I found kind of endearing. I love um, that. Brilliant brown. <laughs> yeah. They were translucent ones, which I guess, cool. Um, and there was... were... Uh, <laughs> it's just typical as, as far as the ocean yeah. goes. So yes, it's cool, but it's, you know. And also there were blue ones, which is also pretty cool in itself. Smurf. Um, Smurf blue, yes. <laughs> they have Smurf um, ghost and brilliant brown. Yes. Um, evidently, though, brilliant brown was the, definitely the type of cell that was best suited to the medium that was used because they were the ones that really beat out the other colors. Um, it took about a week. The other colors proliferated once or twice, but then they started to die out. Um, but the brown ones uh, did really, really well. That's awesome. I'm Indeed. Proud of that. And I am too, because what they did next was utterly fascinating. You won't so believe they left... what happens next. You got yes. me. I'm clicking. We are clickbait now. Um, so um, they lasted over six months. Uh, they proliferated about every four to five days. And so basically we have all these vials and uh, dishes full of what was once one cell is now a lot. And they also showed some really interesting behavior, including forming shapes that were very reminiscent of uh, a blastula or a gastrula, which are two processes in embryonic development that happen for every single animal. Yeah, the blastula... Is that what becomes our brain and heart and the gastrula becomes our, like, digestive organs? Ooh, go back way further. So, like, you're talking, like, the first cell line. The the, the blastula is, like, a little sphere, and then it gets the cleavage in it, and it becomes the gastrula. 
Oh, my bad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, still cool. Still cool indeed. Um, This is just so, so amazing. Uh, For for one, it worked. And two, um, now we can actually do what they want, which is sort of get a look at start introducing the algae that are actually native to this species and seeing if we can start inducing some colonization events. So we're going to actually see if we can basically have this plant-animal partnership also happen in vitro in the labs. Mm -hmm. Study that! Because we do know that that relationship is what's being torn apart by climate change. So exactly, we got to study that relationship. We got to get, got to get Dr. Phil in there. We got to get Brene Brown in there. Just well, he's not a doctor, so let's keep him. Actually, out, but... yeah, no, keep Dr. Phil away from them. He's not going <laughs> to. Yeah, but like Brene Brown could probably help. I don't know who that is. Oh, she's, she like, tells you to like live your truth and stuff. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, I did want to talk about one more thing, though, which is they didn't mention it, which I'm guessing is because they study Indo-Pacific corals and it hasn't really made it to the Indo-Pacific yet. But this also opens up the avenue to study something that has a really cute nickname, but is an absolutely horrifying thing, which is called stony coral tissue loss disease, which has been abbreviated by coral scientists as Skittle D. Skittle D is cute. Um, yep. But stony coral tissue loss disease is absolutely terrible. It is decimating the Caribbean. Yes. And not only that, but we don't know why it happens. We don't know if it's caused by a bacteria. We don't know if it's caused by a virus, by a fungi. We don't know because it is so hard to culture marine microbes. Mm -hmm. But now that we can culture coral and Elkhorn and Staghorn coral seem to be especially susceptible to stony coral tissue loss disease, maybe we can start gathering seawater from these places and seeing if we can try it ourselves. Um, Because you know, it's, it's lab-grown coral, so it's not actually going to infect corals um, any elsewhere. Yeah. And understanding how this disease actually insets would be huge to actually stopping it or at least combating it. Anybody, any researcher who wants to learn more about corals, study them more in a lab, learn how to propagate them, learn how to farm them, can learn a lot from this study and what's being done at this university. So that's just really exciting for everyone who cares about corals, which includes you and me, Jared. Yeah, I yeah. care about corals. However, um, if anyone's listening is not a scientist, because nor am I, but if you do live in Florida, I have an exciting opportunity for you. So um, one thing that the lay people can do to help corals on the ground right now um, is to work with a citizen science organization called Coral Restoration Foundation. So if anybody already is like a scuba diver or snorkeler in in the Florida Keys, Basically, they have their own app. They have a little class you take that teaches you how to identify different corals and how to identify which ones are healthy and which ones aren't. And then oh, that's you, awesome. you use their app and their special phone case to bring with you on your dive trip and help them basically assess the health of all of the corals in the Florida Keys and monitor the health conditions. So when something starts to go wrong, they can be there. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm going to uh, latch onto that and uh, tell the people that live around us, uh, around the New England area, about something that they can do. Because we don't have corals, but we do have frogs, which are another indicator species that tells us uh, whether the environment might be having some problems. Uh, Frog Watch is an amazing thing run by a lot of zoos and aquaria, and I, I think Mass Autobahn, like wherever you are, that allows you to learn the calls of local frog and toad species so you can help scientists census them. There you go. Citizen science is everywhere. So you don't have to mm-hmm. be a scientist with 
all of this lab stuff, letting you culture unculturable microbes um, to get involved. There's so much other stuff that you can do. But if you want to hear about the science side of it, come back next week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And don't forget, you can talk to us. Feel free to uh, write us a review, um, to rate the podcast. Feel free to send us an email at podcast at scienceandpictures.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Science and Podcast, or on Instagram, science underscore in underscore podcast. And you can DM us there as well. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed this little mini-sode about culturing corals. And um, look forward to filling your ear holes once more for our full episode later in the week. Mm -hmm. And with that, goodbye. Goodbye.